Today's episode is brought to you by award-winning author Claire Fuller's Unsettled Ground, which Lauren Groff calls so sharply, so utterly brilliant that I found myself holding my breath while reading, dazzled by Fuller's mastery and precision. In the novel, which follows twins Jeannie and Julius after the death of their mother, Fuller masterfully builds a tale of sacrifice and hope, of homelessness and hardship, of love and survival, in which two marginalized and remarkable people uncover long-held family secrets, and in their own way, repair, recover, and begin again. Unsettled Ground is out on May 18th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's conversation with Alyssa Washuda is one I've been wanting to have for many years now. A conversation about writing our own true stories and how to find the right form to do so. How much can we shape our stories to fit a form or to satisfy a reader and still have them remain true to what we experienced? What can you discover about your own voice by inhabiting the forms of another? How does one create forms when none that exist are able to capture one's lived experience? And what makes all of these questions particularly fascinating for me is how they echo back against questions of self and selfhood, of persona and protagonist, about self-discovery as a writer, and about the mystery of rendering a self in words. For the bonus audio archive, Alyssa Washuda reads from the draft of an essay in progress entitled Apocalypse Pathology. This joins bonus audio from Laylee Long Soldier, Ted Chang, Nikki Finney, Tommy Pico, N.K. Jemison, Jeannie Venasco, Garth Greenwell, and many others. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio, to find out about the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Alyssa Washuda. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Alyssa Washuda, a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe, 
Washuda is a graduate of the University of Maryland, earned a master's degree in creative writing from the University of Washington, has taught at Seattle's Center for Writers, the Richard Hugo House, as well as the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. And since 2017, Washuda has been a professor of writing at Ohio State University. She's the author of Starvation Mode, a memoir of food consumption and control, and the Washington State Book Award finalist, My Body is a Book of Rules, which Sally Tisdale described as a funny, scary, unpredictable book, a fearless ride of sex, drugs, mood disorders, self-improvement, dieting, internet dating, and ethnic identity. Washuda has received fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, Creative Capital, and the Potlatch Fund, among many other places. With Teresa Warburton, she's the co-editor of the anthology Shapes of Native Nonfiction, of which Tommy Pico says, Shapes of Native Nonfiction is exciting, fresh, and profound. It provides the space for Native nonfiction to be indigenous without the pressure to perform indigeneity. The writing gets to be weird, joyful, wounded, flip, deep, unflinching, terrified, and secure. Expression over cultural expectation. I turn to it and return to it, delighted each time. Alyssa Washuda is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest, much-anticipated book, White Magic, just out from Tin House. Forward in its starred review says, Though not for the faint of heart, Washuda's frank confrontations with and acknowledgments of unhealed wounds are validating. A kinship forms in the shared brokenness, inviting a comparison of where the cracks may line up. Quote, I haven't memorized the entries in the catalog of demons. I don't even know the name of the one inside me, Washuda says, of her understanding of the occult and of herself. Such open admissions of confusion and searching cultivate an intimacy throughout the text, evoking the sense of peeling open a letter from an estranged friend. Washuda's voice haunts by admitting to being haunted. Kirkus in its star review calls white magic a fascinating magic trick that breaks from traditional memoir in intriguing ways, including footnotes that speak directly to readers and an essay that begins by focusing on Twin Peaks and then slowly begins to emulate it, moving back and forth through time and showing the changing nature of narrative across shifting time frames. Richard Van Camp adds, these pages are windows into a black lodge where Twin Peaks and Fleetwood Mac are on repeat, sometimes forward, sometimes backwards, sometimes in blackout blur. I stand in awe of everything here. What an incredible and wounding read. Finally, Stephen Graham Jones says, White magic, red magic, Stevie Nicks magic. This is Alyssa Washuda magic, which is a spell carved from a life, written in blood, and sealed in an honesty I can hardly fathom. Welcome to Between the Covers, Alyssa Washuda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've been excited to have you on the program uh, for a while now, and, and part of that excitement for me is the ways you foreground form across all of your books and how the way you do so 
raises questions, not only for writers, writer questions that I think are interesting, like how do I find the right form for the story I want to tell, but also make visible the ways the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that are told about us affect the shape of our lives. So we see this focus on form, I think, in, in many different ways. And in my body is a book of rules from your inhabiting and re-editing of a letter from the campus psychiatrist to the way you took unstructured notebook writings on a sexual assault and shaped them into a law and order special victims unit interrogation of you by a good cop and a bad cop. And we see this in star starvation mode, which is structured as a series of rules about eating. And again, we see it in the native nonfiction anthology, which could have been just an anthology of native nonfiction, but you not only titled Shapes of Native Nonfiction, but with your intro framed it as very much about the importance of the vessel that is chosen to hold a story. On top of that, you teach a class, Forms of Literature at OSU, and White Magic continues this tradition of your ongoing fascination with forms and their effects, good and bad effects of forms. So before we talk about White Magic, maybe we could just start with what is this fascination for Alyssa Washuda and form? That's such a good question. I, I don't know what the exact fascination is. I don't know where it came from, but it just always felt exciting to me as long as I've been writing nonfiction form and the form forwardness of some of the essays that I was reading early on when I was in my MFA program, it was just, it finally just made something click about writing for me that hadn't felt completely natural before when I was writing short stories and when I was writing poetry before that. Um, I think that initially it felt like such a good way to enter a potential project by knowing, okay, I've got this idea for this topic, which is how bad I am at online dating because I am a liar. And, you know, there, there's my idea for that. And then the form is the match.com profile and all of the standard categories and questions. And it's just a sort of like doable project to... <laughs> plug in the information and the details into those slots that are already there in the form. I think that that was a really good way to create my own set of constraints at the beginning of nonfiction writing when everything was just so new and huge and I had no idea where to begin. Um, creating rules for myself was the, the thing that I did. Um, because that's always been a thing that helps me uh, feel comfortable within chaos. Um, I just really like any kind of narrative structure that makes me think about the structure itself. I find it fascinating because I love thinking about narrative. I love thinking about construction and, um, you know, how these stories are formed into art, you know, whether it's video games or 
movies or TV series or um, individual episodes within TV series or books, of course. Um, I'm just fascinated by how those narratives are made and the ways they want to reach out to the audience and show you know, behind the curtain a little bit that this is a crafted thing. I just love that. I just find it so appealing. And I'm, I'm really interested in always making sure that I understand the fundamentals of, of something that I'm doing or something that I'm learning about to the point where I'm really getting into the, the fundamentals under what I consider the fundamentals um, so that I, I really am not taking for granted that I understand anything. Mm. Um, like you mentioned the class on forms that I'm teaching. When I taught it a few years ago, we talked about the lyric essay and experimentation. And we did that this semester too, but I wanted to start way more basic than that by talking about time, like what is time and narrative? What is narrative? Uh, what is form? Because I think the more basic we get, the more complex all of these things show themselves to be. So that's my fascination that it just seems endlessly interesting. And writers are doing so many interesting things with form all the time. I think, you know, especially with like hermit crab essays, received form essays like the match.com profile essay I was talking about. The the reader the writers I teach sometimes are concerned like, will this seem gimmicky? Is this overdone already? And so people who are working in form that makes itself visible, I think are really um, constantly renewing their craft uh, in a way that is just so compelling to me. Well, I remember one of the first classes I took uh, studying writing was a class called Writing Inside the Box, which was a constraint class. So uh, this idea of the hermit crab, and it did feel like when you would get an assignment, like, what the hell are you asking me to do? But there was the weird paradox that I feel like that was one of the main ways I was able to find my voice was by entering like, quote unquote, someone else's house. So the way that Brenda Miller and Suzanne Paola talk about the hermit crab form um, is, is that it allows for an additional form of protection around the soft underbelly of memory or experience or trauma that the writer wants to get onto the page. Um, I think that that is in part why it's so compelling to the writers I teach a lot of the time. Um, it's also just new and different considered uh, compared to many of the things that they've seen before. But I do think that trauma can seem, I mean, can be so huge. It's just so vast that it really does become really helpful to have something to, you know, form those boundaries to, you know, like I said, like control the chaos. Yeah. Well, you have this in, in my body's a book of rules. You, you hint at an origin story for you of interest. Um, and you have this, I, I guess you might call this a, one of the many hermit crabs in that book is your 
preliminary bibliography. It's a section of the book where we sort of learn about you through these little blurbs that you write about different books you encountered. And so in that section, we get Leslie Marmosilko's ceremony and your excitement about taking a, a Native American anthropology class and how you really wanted to will yourself to love ceremony because it was a canonical Native novel and your guilt at not feeling a connection to it when you read it. And then writing your final paper, a personal essay about being a suburban Indian instead of about ceremony, and where you said, I just don't get these books. They have nothing to do with me. And then the next listing is about the book House of Leaves, and you talk about how you were jealous of that author who just seemed to be able to do whatever the hell he wanted to do. So he did different fonts, different colors, footnotes with fake sources, sideways texts. And at the time for you, everything was in Times New Roman, double-spaced, conventional narrative, flow. Uh, and as you mentioned just now and also in that section of the book, you realized a lot about that you could do anything you wanted to in graduate school. And I, I wondered if there were uh, specific teachers that drew that out of you, or if not teachers, maybe a certain book or two that just lodged in your brain when you were there that feels like a, a lodestar for, um, for everything that's come since. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's definitely true as a big part of how I came to write the way I write. And since, you know, since writing my body is a book of rules, I've been thinking about all of the other books that did this for me before I even really considered myself a writer. There was this book I loved as a child called The Jolly Postman, which uh, has envelopes inside and mm. you can take the letters out. Um, I had a few books like that. Books that really called attention to their artifice were so fascinating to me and exciting. And so when I got to University of Washington, I, I was there as a fiction writer, but first quarter I took a class with David Shields that was just completely transformative for me. Um, he introduced us to the collage essay and various examples by Eulabis, Jonathan Safran Foer, um, and other writers who were doing these really fascinating things on the page with breakage, with symbols, um, and other elements that were, I think, reminiscent of House of Leaves in many ways. The difference was that this wasn't a literature class, this was a craft class, and I was being told that I could do this, which was remarkable for me, and really, really influential, and it, it just, you know, it was so exciting, and I kind of stopped writing fiction then, uh, or I did stop, I tried again years later, but uh, I, I just found that that tapped into the exact thing that I needed. Um, and the other grad school professor who was really influential for me was Maya Sonnenberg, who really pushed me at the sentence level to um, be very conscious of style and to tighten up my style a little bit. 
And I, I remember she read a draft of my thesis and circled every instance of uh, forms of the verb to be on one page. And it was just, I, I mean, it was just covered with circled <laughs> words. And um, that's when I realized, oh, I have so many verbs available to me. There's just all these possibilities I I didn't know about at all until grad school. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things that stands out to me in the reading experience of reading you that I'm really intrigued by is this seeming lack of distance between what you're writing about and when you're writing about it. Um, I'm thinking of like Vivian Gornick's book about writing memoir, the situation and the story, and she says that. One, one reason it can take a long time to write a memoir is because it can take a long time to figure out the voice, to create or construct a stable persona and vantage point from which to tell the story. A persona that is sort of both you and not you at the same time, and to varying degrees differs from the quote-unquote you that you're writing about. Um, and in a similar vein, I feel like it's sort of a truism for a lot of writing teachers to recommend having a distance from the time period being written about. But in your case, I don't know if it's true, but it at least feels like you're writing about things that have happened close to the time of writing within several years. But particularly in your first book, you're writing about your 20s in your 20s and your identity or your persona does not feel like a fixed thing. It feels unstable in an interesting way as a reader. And in both books, it feels like your persona is being worked out before our eyes rather than the Gornick version of figuring out the vantage point and then writing from it. And what is interesting about that is it feels like your self-conception in several key ways has changed between your portrayal of yourself and my body as a book of rules and white magic. For one... In your earlier book, you were given a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, a diagnosis you weren't only medicated for improperly for years, but a diagnosis that in its own way is a story about yourself given to you and from which you organized one way to relate to your identity. But you have since learned that you have PTSD from multiple sexual assaults and that you weren't receiving the proper care. Likewise, in the earlier book, you've talked about how when you were writing it, you believed in a fractionated ethnic identity, and you felt a need to represent yourself at the time proportionally to what you were, how much you were Cowlitz, how much you were Polish, for instance. But your, your sense of identity in this regard, has it seems to have changed considerably since then. So I was hoping you could talk about, well, perhaps you could talk about persona in this regard, but also I'd be interested to hear you talk about these two shifts in self-narrative. For one, with the, with the psychiatric diagnosis, what has the sudden change to a new story done to your sense of, of self or to your writing? And with your, your ancestral identity, what led you to move away from, I, I don't know if you'd call it a fractionated identity theory based on blood, to a different self-conception and how has that affected your your way of writing into self? It is definitely true that I write about things as they happen. I think, you know, there's, I'm holding 
in some tension, these different craft ideas that are important to me. On the one hand, there's Lopate's idea of the double perspective, looking back on one's younger self with greater scrutiny and sympathy. And um, I think that's useful. And there's also, I'm pretty, I'm weighted more heavily toward this, Degata's idea of essay as experiment um, and not, you know, the importance of not necessarily knowing where it's headed. So if I'm working out something, or if I'm working on something that I've already worked out, then there's no experiment. I know, I already know what's gonna happen. I know what the insight is. And, you know, I, I, I don't have anything really at stake in figuring it out. So I like for there to be something that is still unsettled about what I'm looking into. So that could be recent. It could be further in the past. There has to be something at stake in my real life in the present, though. It is certainly different now than when I was writing My Body is a Book of Rules. I mean, that was, I mean, it was extreme in, in how close I was to the things I was writing about. And I think it comes through in the voice. I was writing about a rape that had taken place, I think maybe two years before I started writing. And I was working on that Law and Order essay, watching the episodes of Law and Order and you know, making plans for this essay about being raped in college. Um, and as I was working on it, I was assaulted again. And so that became part of the essay too. Um, and then I had another experience that I um, felt belonged in there, but ended up not ever putting in um, because the work of trying to let this essay figure out all the things I needed to figure out, that wasn't going to work. It had to be cut off somewhere as, you know, art rather than my therapy sessions, although I believe they are related. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in writing my body as a book of rules, things were very much unresolved. I was very much still um, suffering and erratic and and young and like that more than anything. I was about 22 to 25 when I was working on that book. And so now I'm 36 and the bulk of the writing of white magic was done after age 33 or 32. So still young, but a little bit older and sobriety changed me dramatically. Uh, and helped me to come to some insight that I didn't have earlier. Therapy helped me to come to some insight that I didn't have earlier. And I just became so much more confident in myself and confident that I, I, I knew how to write books, um, that there were things that 
really just became so much clearer to me as I was in these in-between years when I wasn't writing very much or wasn't writing anything that I ended up keeping. Um, you know, I just becoming an adult, I learned so much more about what it means to be cowlets and the, the fact that a fractionated identity does not make sense to me. Um, I am fully a, a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe. That is, you know, that is a nation that I fully belong to. It doesn't have anything to do with my blood quantum. Like that's, that's just not relevant in my tribe. Um, and the fact that I have, um, you know, like French ancestry or Welsh ancestry or something, it doesn't mean anything in my everyday life. Being Cowlitz means something. And that is what I came to learn after just spending so much more time with other native people after I'd lived, lived in Seattle for a few years, worked in American Indian studies, some days, you know, only interacted with native people, which had not been my experience when I was writing my body as a book of rules. Um, and I think, you know, my body as a book of rules is so much about the experience of being given definitions of myself that came from documents that I didn't write. Um, whether they're, you know, my uh, medical records or, um, you know, some of the other, the, the episodes of Law and Order that I feel very much resonate with my experiences in some ways, but are ultimately not about me. I felt that I was given these texts and just had to be defined or define myself in relation to them. And then I grew out of that. And I realized, you know, just because the kids I grew up around had no understanding of what it means to be a member of a native nation doesn't mean that, that their definition is true. Like their definition is irrelevant. My tribe's definition of my belonging is relevant. So yeah, so it was just a matter of, of just learning things, learning and growing and all of that. Um, but I think in addition to some of the, you know, some of the things I wrote about myself being revised, like not being bipolar, being a really big thing um, and revisited and figured out, there was also something in craft that really changed. I think my interest in form is not super different from the way it was back then, although it's developed. But the way I think about persona has changed a lot just from the experience of having a book about myself out in the world. I thought of, you know, I thought of this as this narrator is artificial. She was based on me, but she was not me. She was an intensified facsimile of myself. Um, and the voice was amplified. And I just saw this as uh, an approximation of self frozen in a moment in time. Mm. That's not how other people see it a lot of the time. Um, and so I have been carrying around this 22 year old fake Alyssa and having to just having to um, 
having her be the first version of me that many people meet and I don't like it. Mm. It doesn't, it doesn't feel comfortable. And that voice is very hard for me to read now. So what I've been doing over the last few years, I think is somewhat consciously, somewhat unconsciously trying to collapse persona and person and trying to actually make this person on the page in white magic, me, my voice, um, you know, same as my tweets. I'm the same person (laughs) on Twitter. I'm the same person here. I'm the same person in my book. That's what I want because this book is going to be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. I love that. Well, I want to, you, you, you bring up this gap or rupture that I, that I want to, um, talk to you about in relation to story and form this this gap between two two facts about you on the one hand your great 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 grandfather was a chief of the cascade indians who signed the treaty that ceded the columbia river valley to the american government and nevertheless was hanged a year later by the same occupying force and on the other hand you grew up in new jersey and beyond your immediate family you didn't have a native community at the time and the natives you encountered were mostly in the movies um and i wondered about this rupture when i thought about the way you not only play with form but also how you bring form into the story as content because in all of your work you 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 speak directly to and sometimes directly to us about your uneasiness about narrative forms and their truthfulness you ask in different ways whether if you change the way your life happened to fit a form, are you still telling the truth about yourself? And I guess one of those, you've sort of brought up one version of that question with if you heighten yourself into an exaggerated facsimile, is it still you? Um, we, we see this uneasiness with form in starvation mode where the section on rules is followed by a section of lies. And the first act of white magic opens with a section called little lies similarly in white magic you say living inside narratives means becoming an insight machine and i'm tired of realizing that word is a lie conjuring up epiphanies doesn't make anything real mostly realizing is how i lie so i was hoping you could talk about the question of received forms whether they be hermit crab forms or diagnoses or the views of what a a native person is in your white New Jersey community. Um, But talk about received forms in relation to the ways they can risk making an experience as a writer inauthentic or untrue. Hmm. Or another way, just confronting the very notion of narrative, which inevitably takes a form that's what I'm thinking about, you know, and this is something I struggle with in teaching because I don't want to take for granted that any essay should be a certain way, but I can't get away from the fact that I think essays, you know, personal essays work toward insight. They're like, they have lines of inquiry usually, um, or I don't know, just about always if they're working well. And there's some kind of insight that the essay eventually comes to 
that's that's what's typical. And so, you know, I, I think that any any experience I have of working through memory inside um, translating memory into narrative means that I have to make this series of choices about what from this, you know, basically endless sea of stuff in my mind, what is going to go into, what is going to go onto the page? Because I only have so many words. I only have so many details that I can tell the reader to handle. And I need to figure out what is going to be relevant to speak to this core line of inquiry that I'm traveling along. And so as I make those choices, it's like a series of doors just keeps shutting and shutting where, you know, this is the detail that's important. This is the chosen detail. The other details are less important to this story now. And that just keeps happening. And once I get to the final insight, I think that's when so many doors close because then I've decided for myself that this is what the meaning is. Um, in Just in thinking about um, the question of when I began writing nonfiction or where I started or what the inspiration was, the question I've been answering lately, it's very difficult because there's so many different beginning points. Identifying anything means, you know, putting anything into words and specifying anything means closing off so many other things. And in some ways, narrative always feels like a kind of lie to me because my memory is so terrible. I have, I have memory problems and I build the narrative really truly to, you know, the best of my recollection, but then later I'll remember some complicating thing. I mean, the other day I realized that, you know, in this, this book, that's so much about how I got sober I completely forgot that before, you know, before starting to do a recovery program months earlier, I had been to some meetings that I just totally forgot about. And so it feels in some ways like I cannot, I just have to commit to the process of lying if I'm going to create narrative and I just have to see it as a kind of neutral thing. Um, and the more rigid the form, the greater the potential for that kind of lying, because we're not only trying to fit the line of inquiry, but we're trying to fit all these other contours and corners that are built into the form. Yeah. Well, it made me wonder, like, you talk a lot about it in Shapes of Native Nonfiction, you talk about the basket as one way to look at um, form. And one of the ways you you point out the um, using that as a nice uh, image or form or process of making a form is that it's a non-literary one, that it's not putting the emphasis entirely on, on the written word. It's putting the emphasis on, or instead of closing doors, it feels like it's opening doors. And I wondered if that was also going on because a lot of your forms that you choose to engage with are non-literary forms. So we could think about the tarot, for instance. If you're using the tarot as a form, um, I wonder if that might open more doors 
being an image or a series of images rather than closing doors. Or maybe it doesn't close doors in the same way, just because it's not mm -hmm. just referencing back to words. You know, my encounter with the tower or the fool and yours, mm -hmm. my encounter one day versus another day, of course that's true with words too, mm -hmm. but less so, I think, than... And just are the possibilities of what um, making a basket and looking at writing as similar to making a basket might open up. I don't know. Maybe yeah. this is a stretch, but. I don't think it's a stretch. I think I'm, I'm trying to like form what's in my mind into sentences. Um, if we're talking about received forms, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, going back to the match.com example, there are fields that we are supposed to put words in. So that narrows down our choices and our, our possibilities very much, you know, because there are instructions for where to put the words. There are expectations of what kind of information will be there. And of course, the point of the hermit crab in, in part is to eventually break out of the form and eventually, you know, destroy the form. Um, I think usually, but with image or with the material of a basket, there's, when there are no words, I think that there are a lot more possibilities for relating to something, not in the way that is prescribed, but in whatever way we relate to space or to, you know, matter, material, um, image. And that I think opens up so many more possibilities just for, I don't know, different people's different kinds of relationships with, with form, um, beyond literary form, but just form more broadly, um, any kind of organizing principle. Could, could we hear the little mini two-page section at the beginning of Act One? Yeah. A narrative has a beginning, middle, and end. It could start with the protagonist in crisis, with a hook maybe, a violent tool. It could start in the middle of the action or in a moment heavy with impending calamity. It should not start in a morning bed, waking from a dream. People only like dreams of their own. A narrative could start with calm, the kind that can't last. The reader needs to wonder what's going to happen. It should start with someone wanting something so bad they'll do anything, or at least they'll do something. Maybe they know what they want. Maybe they don't or have the wrong idea. There must be trouble, a protagonist in danger. She should be thrust by high stakes into her journey and shoved off by an inciting incident. A satisfying narrative takes its shape from story structures readers recognize in their bones. The writing should teach the reader how to read it. I don't know what that means, but it's true. Fiction writers make plot. In nonfiction, writers make insights. We shape the recollected by how the remembering changes us. The mind wants to understand what's done but not settled. The past is boring because it's over. There is another way, 
You can make up plot points in nonfiction and you can do it without lying. You just have to make your life a book. I can't recommend it. I was trapped, stuck in a hole. I was bored by what I wanted. I decided to follow my curiosity about what I desired. I'm best as a protagonist. I can make anything meaningful. Look at all these motifs I made for you. This rejection pain I transformed into epic heartbreak. See what a powerful witch I am? Plot is a cause and effect sequence of arranged events in a created work. Narrative, same. I checked a craft book to confirm. The index said, plot, see conflict. I thought I was anti-plot until I realized my thinking is mostly building sequence and imposing consequence. I make narratives to make sense of what happened to me. But then I began adding plot points. I like the real, essays about life. Real or still, I figured, life about essay. It's cliche to explain that the word essay comes from the middle French verb meaning to try, to attempt. Now I've gone and said it, but what about this? What about essaying not just to try to think through a thing, but to force life to become a string of plot points, to make calamity from calm? Years ago, I built a book from looping failure cycles. In every essay, I turned over the same things, asking new angles for answers, but understanding was not enough to make me whole. The book did not end with resolution. This one has to. I think what follows would be called standalone essays. Fine. Or you could think of this as a dossier, the evidence of my attempts. If I don't exit these time loops, these men echoing men, their cause, my effect, I will meet my tragic end. I'm saying a man might kill me if I keep choosing wrong. The protagonist's stakes are what might be lost or gained when she takes a risk. I could write a book about what happened and what it all meant, attaching stakes to understanding it all. Or I could raise them. I could gain a life I can't imagine if I find my way out. Been listening to Alyssa Washuda read from her latest book, White Magic, from Tin House. You mentioned a couple things in this short passage that feel like ways that you ultimately found forms or created forms that more authentically reflect your, your embodied experience. You mentioned one way you could look at the book as a dossier, and you've talked elsewhere about how, and you've talked here about how, because of the memory gaps you have from alcohol abuse in your 20s, that the dossier form is a way to collect the memories that you do have. And you also mentioned time loops here. And in your Believer interview, you say, speaking about your first book and how you, you kept going out with the wrong men and kept trying and failing to quit drinking, you say the following. I thought of it as a process where every essay had this kind of separate loop of an arc that took me back to where I was at the beginning, not having learned, not having grown, not having progressed at all, but eventually making progress through that compiling of loops. But then you go on in that same conversation to also connect repetition to traditional tribal storytelling and also with incantations 
and spell making, and then back again to writing and the importance of repetition on the level of the sentence. So I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little bit more about dossier and time loop forms in relationship to white magic, um, since you do bring them up right here in Act 1, and they feel like they're... Uh, they feel like Washuda invented forms like that are better suited than say like the match, not that you're not going to ever do a match.com form again, but, but in a way it feels like these are, these are forms, at least they seem like forms that you've selected uh, not to fit yourself into their shape, but because they fit better with yours. So when it comes to some received forms, the boundaries of that form could possibly suggest an endpoint that I knew I could not impose on this writing, this line of inquiry, whatever it was. I mean, once I realized that I was trying to figure out why, why can't I get over my ex? And then what is behind all of this? Like, why does this feel significant? Um, that became the line of inquiry. And I realized this book isn't going to end at an end point that makes sense for the reader first. This book is going to end when I actually figure that out and stop getting into these relationships over and over. And so I actually had to break these patterns. Um, and these were, you know, so these loops happened not just in narrative the way that they did with my first book, but these were loops I was starting to see in life. You know, I started to see that a boyfriend was acting just like an ex had. I was acting just like I had in the last relationship. I was doing the same things over and over again. And um, so that was something that I started picking up on having already thought about repetition and loops and the failure process that is necessary in a you know book length uh, personal narrative. I can't figure it out at the end of the first essay because then that's just an essay. There's no reason to keep going on in the book. So I knew I was failing, but then this additional set of time loops presented itself in 2018, that summer, I write about in, in White Magic. I was out in Seattle and I was with Carl, the ex-boyfriend this book is so concerned with. And we realized that we were doing the same thing we had done that day, the year before, or around the same time. And it got really, it got really precise, whatever was happening with these time loops, you know, like going back to a restaurant, I had only been to that one other time, um, things like that. And so I thought, okay, let me actually just figure this out. And I did have to invent a new form or got to invent a new form at that time because I really had no idea how this was going to work. When I started, you know, collecting 
Well, you know, so first I was thinking about all the instances of those kinds of time loops where I was doing the same thing I had one year before, two years before. And I wrote them on index cards, just little notes about what had happened and the date. And I did that until there was nothing more in my memory or my calendar or, you know, my emails and texts and wherever I was looking, I felt like I had a set of all of the things that had happened. And, you know, I really didn't know whether anything was going to come of it. It really was, I mean, it was, it wasn't even an experiment. I had no hypothesis. I had nothing that I thought that I might find there other than these weird coincidences. And so I needed to create a form that would allow me to place the coincidences together, flattening time or creating something like um, a way for time to be layered. So that essay I'm talking about, the spirit cabinet begins with January 1st, ends with December 31st, mostly goes through 2016, 17, 18 and just places the events and little fragments against one another. That was the way that I felt that I could collapse time um, through form. And in the end, it worked. Um, well, it was also the question, are they coincidences or are they synchronicities? Which is, it's right. not, which is left open. Um, but this idea of um, are you constructing the connections or are these connections speaking to you from outside of you? Yeah, and I think I'm still ambivalent about that. Or, you know, I guess what it is is that I, I believe they're synchronicities. I think these things are just too weird. The coincidences are too weird to be coincidences. It's too weird to be confirmation bias or whatever. It's just too precise. And I wanted the, the form to, I guess, be convincing in a way that there was something to all this. I wasn't just making it up. And, you know, that this was not just a magic trick that of, you know, like a magician who doesn't really believe in magic, but wants to make the audience feel something. That's not what was happening. I authentically was very surprised by just how everything lined up because I thought it was going to flop, but it didn't. It was, it was very eerie. And so, you know, I think, I think these things are synchronicities. I, I think it's still unexplainable because I know I didn't do it. Well, one of the ways formally you, you use repetition and, and, and time loops, perhaps the most immediately ap apparent way you use it in white magic is the repeating epigraphs at the beginning of sections. So each time we arrive at one of these pages, which is pretty often, we get the exact same epigraphs from Louise Erdrich and Alice Notley. And it way, in a way, it feels like the time loops because we, no matter what we've just learned back at the beginning or in the middle of the book, we arrive at the quote-unquote same place, yet nevertheless something has changed. And one of the things that's changed is there's an evolving set of footnotes where you're addressing us 
that are different, but the epigraphs are the same. And, and you're um, addressing us about us. But I, I, I'm curious, before we talk about the footnotes, if you could talk about the repeating epigraphs, um, what do you feel like they're doing? And then if you want, um, I would imagine, given how often they reappear, what um, that these epigraphs must be of particular importance to you, the Notley and the Erdrich. Yeah, I think the effects, I eventually saw them... Um, the, the ways I eventually saw them working were different from, you know, where I started with them, which was basically that I, I love epigraphs. I used so many in my body as a book of rules. I just love them. I think that they're delightful. Like, you know, a book is like a cabinet of curiosities and I get to pick my favorite things and put them in there. Um, they're for me more than they are for the reader, probably. And, you know, every once in a while, these various craft conversations pop up on literary Twitter. And one day, uh, people were just slamming the use of epigraphs. And I realized, you know, I, I am attached to epigraphs, and I don't care what the reader thinks. Um, and it felt really free freeing to realize that it's okay to have something in my book that's just for me. I mean, I'm the one who has to work on it for as long as I do. Like, let me have something that's delightful. I want my little epigraphs. Um, I have to spend more time with it than the reader does. So just let me have these things that are just for me, you know? Um, and I was working in such isolation on this book. I mean, isolation in that I wasn't really showing it to anybody as I was working on it, which was intentional but it it gets a little uh like wild in there when while you know doing this thing for so long that's so massive and that nobody has seen um and so I just thought well what if I just put in the same epigraphs for every essay because I think somebody had said well I just skip over the epigraphs and I realized honestly I kind of do that too a lot of the time when I'm reading um, so what if I just keep having them come back and we can test, <laughs> test the reader and see if they're paying attention. Yeah. Um, it really just started as like a, a really, uh, like petty and silly thing, uh, that was like kind of nonsense. But once they were there, I realized that they were doing exactly what you said to, to mark that move back to where we were before. The fact that they come back again and again is sort of incantatory and um, spell-like, I think, um, and is a little bit like ritual. I think th there's another there's another thing I thought of um, as you were asking the question, in doing all the like watching of Twin Peaks that I did and um, quoting it as much as I did and referring to different episodes, I found that when I was looking for the several moments that come up multiple times throughout the series, 
um, you know, moments in the Black Lodge uh, in particular, my memory of how they had appeared previously was off a lot of the time. Um, certain things, I can't remember the specifics, but certain things were or were not said that I remembered being said or did not remember being said. Um, and it was, it's interesting to think about um, revisiting something and being a little bit destabilized as far as like the question of what has changed, what is different now. Mm. Um, yeah, so I have an entire poem by Alice Notley and two lines from Louise Erdrich's The Strange People. And I think the way those are working for me is somewhat intuitive. I, I don't have, I don't fully have words to put to it or reasoning to share, I don't think, because in some ways it does feel like it's so much just for me and there's no need to, to explain how it works yeah. um, or justify them because ultimately do you want to read? Do you want to read them? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Alice Notley poem is All my life, since I was 10, I've been waiting to be in this hell here with you, all I've ever wanted and still do. Um, and the urgent lines are If a man was never to lie to me, never lie me. I swear I would never leave him. Mm. Um, I think I just get these, these gut feelings when I read these, this poem and these lines or both, you know, the full Urgic poem as well. And they're both poems that I always feel like I could read so many times in my life and never feel like I've worn them out for myself. And I think there's something about the Notley poem that feels like it captures the experience of wanting something that is hellish. I mean, that's what the poem is about. And I think that's, that's what the book is about too, in many ways. Um, well, I have a I have a question from someone else that yeah. I want to ask you around this section. So yesterday I was a I was a guest speaker in Jeannie Vanasco's class uh, with her undergraduate writing students, and I'm just going to say Jeannie Vanasco because I mispronounced her name Vanasco the entire time I interviewed her. So this is my hello Jeannie Vanasco's writing class uh, who, who are hopefully listening. But one of the things I mentioned in that class talking to her I was thinking of like um Carmen Maria Machado talking about the the archive of women being written in sand and how it's always disappearing and how part of what she was doing was sort of like a um uh I don't know if it's resurrection but trying to establish um lineage and and uh, archive archival connections with things that have been released erased and, and brought into the future. And I don't want to 
lump all of you together as if you're similar writers or, or, or entirely doing the same thing because you're not. But I was, I was talking about how I felt like you and her and Melissa Phoebos and Therese Marie Maya and Chelsea Hodson and Sophia Shalmyev and Morgan Parker all felt like you were in your own ways breaking and remaking form in the service of, of, of uh, future archive um, against erasure. Um, particularly against erasure of women, but also other aspects of erasure. Um, but in the lead up to to going to her class, I, I invited Jeannie to ask you a question, and so this is her question to you. Um, oh, and I I, I should mention <laughs> this was obvious to me, and I didn't include it. That Jeannie Vanasquez's book is certainly a huge part of this project as well. So breaking form, making a new form. Um, and and confronting questions of of misogyny and and sexual assault and and um, and erasure of archive. Truly, but yeah. this is yeah. So this is her question. Um, white magic is incredible. My question is inspired by some of your footnotes to your epigraphs. In one footnote, you write, "Quote: When you don't understand the meaning of something you read, whose fault is it? Yours or the writer's?" has to be someone's fault everything does anyway i just ask because this is my book do you think i understand everything in this book if i don't can you in another you write quote do you think this is a good book how do you know is it because you compared it to other books i do want to make you uncomfortable if you're accustomed to being the ideal audience your wants prioritized this is how I treat so many of the people I get close to. I try to give them exactly what they want in some ways, withhold in others. Can you love a person even if you don't understand them? Or how much do you have to understand someone in order to love them? Does one have anything to do with the other at all? So then Jeannie continues by saying, the meta-ness of this goes into these deep philosophical places and as a result of acknowledging the artifice, this tension emerges between intimacy and distance between writer and reader. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about pointing toward artifice as a means of creating intimacy or distance or of doing both simultaneously? Because I keep thinking of that line, this is how I treat so many of the people I get close to. I try to give them exactly what they want in some ways, withholding others. That line was one of the big realizations of the book, and I actually hadn't thought about it till now. Um, but it was it was a significant thing for me to realize because I had not realized until I looked back how much I was withholding from people. Um, so I think this is, this is a great question and I'm not totally sure I have the answer. So I'm just gonna try to talk toward it. But I think that when, whenever we're writing, we're creating something that is going to meet the reader and the reader's gonna bring their stuff and they're gonna meet the stuff that we brought. And we're both working together to make meaning. And so I think in writing and revising, we're always doing what we can to control our part of it and to 
really locate the place where we're going to meet the reader. We think about the reader's expectations. Um, we think about what the likely meaning is they're going to take from something. Um, and we try to create something where they can meet us, even if it's a lot of work for them, something that's possible. And I think that um, the use of artifice in some ways is um, for me, a way of getting closer to the reader. I mean, and just thinking about the process of revising this book manuscript, some of those, those footnotes came later. The introduction to each act was the last thing that I put in. Um, and I think that's, you know, those, that, that part that I read and the one preceding act two and act three, those were all um, attempts to really define for the reader my intentions for and experience with the artifice of this thing that is my memory book. You know, it's it's not just a bunch of my memories. It's it's a bunch of sentences and that I wrote to try to explain something basically. Um, and so, you know, before, before those introductions were there, the entire project of the book, I think, wasn't clear in a way that I thought it was. Uh, I, I, I thought it was clear as being, you know, not a collection of very disconnected essays, but as just one, even like one book length essay that's sort of collaged from various essays within that. I mean, that's really how I think about it. Um, and whatever like architecture I had in mind for the book at that point was very much not clear to my uh, readers at that point. So, you know, so I really, um, I think in recent years, it's become obvious to me that I can just say things to the reader. I can just tell the reader things. Um, and actually, you know, that is very much connected to like this, that whole realization of withholding from people. Just like in romantic relationships, there was always like the thing that you can't come out and say, you can't come out and tell someone like how infatuated you are with him. You can't tell him that you need him, you, you know? And so I would withhold those things and, you know, like that I don't do anymore. Um, and I also don't make the reader work for things that are not going to have any payoff. Um, I, if I, if I'm asking the reader to do work, I want it to be worth it. I want it. I want them to feel satisfied with the work that they've done. And, you know, I want them to feel like they're participating in meaning making for a reason, not to, you know, figure out something I'm withholding because I'm being coy or because I just think for no reason that I shouldn't say it. So I've tried to move toward being really direct with the reader when I need to be, because I know that the 
the gap between my intentions for their reading and their reading, it's always going to be a variable size, but I can do things to make sure it's not, you know, it's not overly massive um, for no reason. Well, I want to take this, you mentioned architecture, and I want to take this question of architecture outside of writing to the world and talk about questions of place and space versus questions of time. Because you said this really, I'm going to read another thing from The Believer, which I'll definitely include the link to that conversation to listeners because it's a great one. Um, And you're talking about having, in the conversation, you're talking about having having severe working memory deficit. And you say, I don't remember when things happened there. So place becomes the central piece of narrative for me that I think has somewhat replaced time because of the fact that I don't just have a timeline with gaps. I have all gaps and little islands of memory. And they are islands. They're physical. They're geographical for me. And that is really apparent in the book I ended up writing. And I was hoping we could take this um, as a way to sort of talk about the section of white magic where you're a writer in residence inside the Fremont Bridge in Seattle. And from that vantage point, you're contemplating how the land and the water of Seattle, despite looking, at least at first glance, quite natural and dramatically beautiful, just how much the land and water has been straightened and flattened and dredged by white settlers. Something that you do at the same time as you talk about the the serpent spirits of the same place that have since departed. And I wondered if you could just speak into that aspect of the book about the res- the history of the reshaping of the physicality of Seattle as it relates to white settlement and indigenous erasure. Yeah. So I was, I was writer in residence at the Fremont bridge in summer 2016. And, you know, I thought I wasn't even going to apply for this thing because I thought like, what do I have to say about a bridge? And I realized the bridge was so connected to things I was already writing about. I was already writing about the ship canal uh, and I had somehow forgotten that I had just done massive amounts of research on the the ship canal and Lake Washington and the Ayahu's, the the serpent spirit. Um, And so, yeah, so I spent the summer in that little tower office and was trying to do research on this history of um, the creation of the ship canal. I mean, that was my starting place. And so I was looking at these books about Seattle. And um, I had a couple of books from Seattle Department of Transportation that they lent me, um, old books about engineering in Seattle. And I realized, you know, the, the ship canals creation was really connected to all these other projects that I never even really thought about. Like, the regrading. Of course, I had seen the iconic photos of the Denny regrades with 
these little, I'm not little, they're these spite houses on little pieces of land that um, the residents refused to have regraded. You know, I had seen those photos, but I didn't really think of all of these things as being connected. The filling of the tide flats and the straightening of the Duwamish River, um, the way the Black River dried up, all of it was, you know, were different parts over time of this ongoing project to fill in, flatten, and um, sort of familiarize Seattle to make it uh, to make it legible to settlers as as land, because they've felt that in order to live there, they needed the land to be stabilized in certain ways according to their desires and their convenience. So, you know, river flooding wasn't gonna work for them. Um, and, you know, having a, a shipping channel that was somewhat, uh, the, the channels that were in place of the, that the channels that were originally where the ship canal was created, sometimes were present, sometimes were not. That's not convenient at all for shipping. So they, you know, created this unified project. In researching and writing about this, I was really struggling with time, uh, which was very apparent in uh, the fact check of my book that I was just really struggling to keep all the dates and phases um, in order in my mind because this these this series of projects took place over so many years and in so many different phases and in particular the way that they are written about in the engineering books and in other things that I read feels so divorced from what I understand land to be there's nothing that feels um like there's any sense of place attached it's that it's completely impersonal of course they don't have anything to say about spirits that live there that's not something that's part of their worldview at all and um you know so there's just all these figures about tonnage when it comes to the regrades and like how how many tons of of the land were moved and to where and when um, in a way that I found profoundly boring. Like I just really, I felt like it was important and yet it was so boring. There was nothing that was like, that was narrative or that was imagistic or that was felt. It was all just years and numbers, which I realized meant nothing to me. Mm. Well, and also I'm imagining listeners who haven't read White Magic yet are like, might feel this has been abrupt. Like, why are we all of a sudden talking about dredging of rivers when just like five, <laughs> five minutes ago we were talking about um, form and, and writing into trauma? But it felt like, even though you don't explicitly go there because of the way it's it sits in the book, I mean, it does feel like this is another way in which form and story is imposed um like a uh, form is in being a, uh, an imagined form being a, imposed upon seattle but you also do this really interesting thing um in the way that you connect your own 
individual trauma to this, I think you connect it. I don't think it's explicit, but you connect it to both collective trauma and to this reshaping of geography. Because I'm thinking about your wrong diagnosis and then your right your right diagnosis being the result of sexual assault and then about your moving away from a fractionated identity and how the notion of blood quantum itself is a colonial construct. And I was thinking about how these two shifts in personal identity become connected to the historical trauma of indigenous people in the region and to the dredging and leveling of the land by white settlement. Um, because you cite in the book a CDC Seattle survey of Native women where 94% had been raped or coerced into sex and 96% of these rapes were by non-Natives in the same time when you're talking about you know periods of time in Seattle where Indigenous people aren't allowed to live there and their villages are burned and intermarriages are voided. Um, but you all, and then you similarly, you quote the urban health initiative, which found that nearly every native woman surveyed had been raped and half of them had attempted suicide. Um, in one of the talks you gave, you mentioned a book by Sarah Deer called the beginning and end of rape, where she says colonization and colonizing institutions use tactics that are no different than those of sexual perpetrators including deceit, manipulation, humiliation, and physical force. And then in White Magic, from Leanne Betasamasake Simpson's book, As We Have Always Done Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance, you quote, Colonizers want land, but indigenous bodies forming nations are in the way because they have a strong attachment to land and because they replicate indigeneity. And the colonizers see indigenous women's and girls' bodies as the bodies that reproduce nations. The attack on our bodies, minds, and spirits, and the intimate trauma this encodes is how dispossession is maintained. I'm not entirely sure this is exactly a question, but as much as you said earlier, or that I quoted of you saying earlier that you don't trust realizations and realize realizations are the way you lie. The way I experience this part of the book as a reader, where this connection between your experience um, and the way the land has been treated. And then this larger use of rape and, and sexual assault as part of the dispossession feels epiphanic, epiphanic, not in a false way. Like I imagine into you thinking, wow, this must have been a transformative realization to connect your story after having had so many wrong stories told about you or about the Cowlitz. Um, but I don't know if that's true. I, I, so I guess the question for me is, is about that connection in terms of your own because I don't think that connection would have happened in my body as a book of rules. So I don't remember the realization in that essay in the same way I remember some of the other realizations that happened in the in the writing process. What's possible? I'm I'm creating meaning that's not actually in words. 
but in the no, experience so, of reading your words. Yeah, I think so. I think there is something there is something happening there, and like that has to do with this. So, um, in writing that essay, I mean that essay was. I think it was really the hardest to write. Uh, I may say something different on a different day, but I think I think Centerless Universe was really the hardest book in this essay to write, in part because I was trying to force myself into, you know, a form that was not working for the essay in writing about the forcing of form on Seattle, um, you know, by just trying to do this uh, history project that came from my perspective. Like that history is not my perspective. It has nothing to do with it. So it took me a long time to realize that. And this essay was very long at one point. I think I cut it down. But um, there was something that was not really clicking for me for so long. And then late in the revision process, I... I think I, I realized just how much I was suffering at that time and, and how I hadn't really gotten that on the page. I felt, I felt like Seattle was in some ways not my place or this was not a story about me ultimately um, or it was not a story about my stakes. It was a story about my imposition. That's not, that's not accurate. I mean, I'm not Duwamish, but, you know, I have relations with them in some ways being also Coast Salish and, um, and having the experience of, um, you know, being labeled Native American in the city of Seattle. We have some commonalities and I, I think once I found that data about Native women's experiences of sexual violence in Seattle, I mean, it was really hard, but it also felt very connected to something that was part of the larger project of the book in, um, in trying to convey that I mean, to tr- in trying to convey something, I still don't think that I have the words for, and I didn't have the words for this in my body as a book of rules. And it looks like I'm going to keep writing about it in my next book. And I'm just going to keep going until I find the words, but, you know, there's something in the experience of being colonized that is intensely violent in a particular way that I think I'm probably just not even fully aware of yet. It has to do with my health. It has to do with my spirit. It has to do with, it's, it's everywhere in my experience of this world that I'm in. And I know that um, a criticism I got of my body as a book of rules was that some people felt that my, the connections I made around, you know, being a native woman who was raped were connections that didn't make sense to them. And, you know, that's valid, but maybe it's just not a thing that can be made sense of 
in the way readers want because it's senseless. It's absolutely senseless. There's no sense there. And, and I can't make a conclusion about it because it is, you know, it's in some ways it's like, you know, uh, what is the saying? Like a, like a, like a fish describing water. Like I, I don't know what there is to say about it because this is, you know, the United States is the only place I've lived and, um, settlement are the only conditions I've lived under and my whole almost my whole adult adult life I've lived with this experience of having been raped so it's really hard to essay into some of that you know and arrive where the essay is supposed to arrive because I don't I just don't think it's there yeah well let's stay I want to stay with this um essaying into something like this where you don't have the words and and the fact that you're you're going to keep going because I, it, it reminds me also of I can't remember which podcast I was listening to of you but I think it was last year and you were talking about how when you were still living under the bipolar diagnosis that you weren't sure you ever had feelings in other words whenever you had feelings you wondered if instead of feelings, they were the beginnings of ramping up into a bipolar episode and that it took you a long time to embrace your own feelings on their own terms as both authentic and normal, not an illness. Um, and you've also said it took you a long time to accept, accept the trauma of being raped as authentic and real on its own terms. Like for instance, um, when you got sober, you, it was recommended that you write a drunkalogue. And that narrative was, unlike white magic, is supposed to be chronologic and linear and driven by causation. And you wanted to write it, or you had an urge to write your drinking narrative without the sexual assaults. So you've talked about, just now, about the unpacking of, the process of unpacking just how much you've been colonized, but what about in, in regards to writing and writing into your experience when part of your experience is a distrust of feeling and a desire potentially to self-censor? What are, what are your, is it just about continuing to write in, in, as the solution? I mean, maybe there aren't words to how do you do that, but I wonder about how do you do that? Like, how do you write into the experience um, and maybe it is just more writing um, to sort of exercise that that sense of feeling like what your your most intimate experiences are are actually true experiences rather than disease disease or disorder. Just yesterday, I was telling my grad students about my position that the essay can answer a lot of questions, but it can't answer all questions. And we need other tools for answering some of those questions. And eventually those tools like therapy or, you know, supportive friendship um, or, you know, whatever, whatever tools we have for having our self-reflected back to us. Like those tools, I think, can be used in tandem with the writing process. And, you know, you go and you live in, and learn a little bit more about yourself and then you come back to the page and then you go back to therapy and then you write, you know, and you do a little bit of both. I think that is um, 
part of understanding um, how to respect feelings. So one other big part of this for me was um, when I was at University of Washington, I worked with uh, the Athabascan scholar, Diane Million, whose work on felt theory was really influential to me as it has been to a lot of other people. Um, and just, you know, working with her and seeing her all the time and talking to her as I was, you know, becoming a person really, as I was growing up as uh, <laughs> I grew up a little late in my twenties. Um, I really came to understand intellect and feeling being equally important and being so related to one another and that my feelings were smart you know my whatever my my feeling organ is my soul I guess like was smart and <laughs> um and had knowledge and um yeah I I think when I was being treated for bipolar disorder, you know, I was never, I was never fully stable because I was not bipolar. Now we know. Um, but always in going from one medication to another and just trying to find the right fit that was going to keep me stable. I constantly had to be paying attention to my moods and my feelings. And if I was upset about something, you know, I had I just kind of had to assume that that might be the beginning of an episode. Um, if I was too happy, maybe I was manic. If I was too sad, maybe I was depressed. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I was an alcoholic and was, you know, using a, something that was depressing my central nervous system constantly. Um, every, you know, everything about the experience of feeling was really oversimplified for me. So I think it was around this period that I'm writing about in white magic, like 2016 ish, you know, I got sober in 2015 and then really, I think, um, started to change. I, I changed profoundly in the first year sober, but there were other changes that came in 2016. And that's when I really learned that I had to embrace feeling because I could no longer self-medicate it away. Um, it was just going to stay there. And, and I was also, you know, newly understanding the fact that feelings are not medically bad. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so, so that was part of it. Another part of it is like pretty random, but I, I can't remember whether I wrote about this or not. But I saw, I think I did, I saw a psychic in the Seattle area. Um, his office actually was really close to the Microsoft campus and in like an office park, super weird. <laughs> um, I went to go see this psychic and he told me I needed to strengthen my intuition. And a thing that he suggested, I loved this. I mean, he was a fraud, but I love this thing that he gave me, which is that he said, just when you go for your walks, just listen to your intuition when it tells you where to go and just see what happens. And uh, I mean, really interesting things actually happened then, like running into a crystal salesman with like all of these 
crystals out on tables on the sidewalk. Um, so I think I, I really carried that, you know, far beyond my walks into the rest of my life, just really paying attention to what intuition was. So, you know, I think so much of the work I did uh, to, you know, be able to bring that into the essay happened way outside the writing process. Well, I do want to spend most of the rest of our time talking about magic and divination, which people are probably like, why haven't we been talking about magic? <laughs> but I have one more memoir specific question that I think might be of interest to writers of memoir. Because I want to ask you about the opposite of how do you deal with self-censorship and talk about disclosure. When I think of Stephen Graham Jones' description of your book, a spell carved from a life written in blood and sealed in an honesty I can hardly fathom, it's the honesty and your willingness to disclose the most personal things about you or what seem like the most personal things about you that stands out the most to me as a reader. Um we know about your psychiatric history and your struggles with alcohol, but we also know the names and dosages of the antipsychotics and anticonvulsants and antidepressants and lithium you're on in your first book, your drinking of NyQuil, um, your sexual encounters, consensual and not. Um, but in your first book, these these encounters seem to be more anonymous or at least kept anonymous, whereas in White Magic where one of the through lines of the book is is a breakup as you move from Seattle to Ohio, we get scenes with a good number of men who, to put it lightly, are bad actors um, in detail. And in one podcast, you talked about the anxiety you had around white magic coming out because of how the men depicted in it might respond. But you followed this comment with this great comment, I thought, that you were also most proud of and excited by the language that you had crafted around the things that these people did and should be ashamed of. So they, so you were not going to cut these things out based on your fear of what these people portrayed in the book might think of how they were portrayed. Um, but I wanted to, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about this, the intimacy of what you disclose in your life coupled with knowing because of this that people are going to recognize themselves in the book, um, whether you tried to disguise them for either personal or legal reasons. Was there a legal process with Tin House? Because I'm thinking about when I had Sophia Shalmayev on, she talked a lot about the nightmare for her when they insisted on calling her book a memoir and she had to engage with people that had abused her mm -hmm. around her portrayal. Or Jeannie Venasco's book, who's rapists participated in the creation of the book and became part of the book, but also that involved all sorts of um, questions and hurdles and legal considerations as well. I mean, I don't know if you're willing to talk about that aspect of it as a writer, but I'd be, I, I bet people would be curious about it. People who are writing about whatever trauma they're experiencing where those people are uh, moving around in the world right now um, and may read what they write in the future. Yeah, this is so hard for me. I mean, I, I hate this part of the book coming out. It causes me so much anxiety. You know, I, I, I didn't, 
I didn't include these men as an act of retribution. You know, there are a few people who I think were like really not good to me who are not in the book because they're not part of the story. You know, even though it was during that time period, it's fine. You know, uh, they just, they just weren't part of this narrative. Um, I tried to, I tried to de-identify everyone but Carl as much as I could. Um, and I would have de-identified Carl, except his name was significant um, because his name was the same as a magician that I found while researching. So I had to keep him as he was. I also told him that I was doing this. Uh, I don't know if he remembers, but, uh, and I did not check in with him at the end of the process, but I did tell him that I was writing this and he said it was fine. Um, you know, what I, the way I eventually tried to go about this is, so unfortunately, you know, I mean, I guess I'll preface all this with saying, there's no right way to do this. All the ways are wrong, it seems like, you know, it's, there's, I can only fail in some way at writing about other people. Um, if I don't write about them at all, like that's some pretty hard navel gazing. <laughs> and, uh, and I am accused of that anyway. So I try to write about other people, um, but other people have not always been very nice to me. And that has hurt me and, uh, you know, hurt and conflict drive narrative. So every, every person, every ex-boyfriend or, you know, guy, whoever in this book knew that he was in a relationship with a writer who writes personal essays about the men she slept with. Like, I mean, like, I just feel like if somebody cheats on that kind of writer, they're <laughs> like really making a decision, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I don't, I, I feel like it's, <laughs> um, you know, throughout the, these, you know, breakups and struggles with these guys, uh, friends would tell me that, um, I can't remember the quote, but um, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. I mean, that goes for them too. They should believe me when I say, I write about the men who I've slept with. <laughs> and so um, I think that's the sort of like disclaimer uh, that I, maybe, you know, it's out there implicitly. I don't, I don't give them an explicit warning because I'm always hoping for the best. Um, but I think that that was, that was known about me by all of these men. And um, they chose to do what they did. And what they did becomes part of my story. It's something I experienced. Right. Um, I tr like I said, I really tried to uh, make it so they weren't identifiable easily anyway. Um, tried my hardest for that. And um, I tried at some points taking them out. Some of them I took out and that didn't work either because 
ultimately this story is not it's a it's about romantic relationships and those I have with other people so yeah it was it was hard it's still hard I have a lot of anxiety around it um part of that is I don't like it when people are mad at me um yeah but I mean there's other considerations too um I don't want to destroy anyone's life or, uh, you know, cause anyone, um, disruption. I did write about them using language that was very precise and said the things that I didn't say to them at the time, oftentimes. And I think that was necessary for me. And it was necessary for the development of, you know, me as narrator character in this book is, is coming into that language to pinpoint exactly what they did to hurt me, which I think many of them thought I wasn't noticing. Mm. Um, Tin House, I think uh, they, they did have a legal read of the book. Um, You know, ultimately everything I wrote about is, is factual. Everybody's de-identified, but Carl and, you know, the things I said, about what Carl did are, are true. They happened. And so that's kind of, I think, where we all are with it. Yeah. And I just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope for the best too. L- let's, um, let's meditate a little on magic together. Mm-hmm. Um, the book meditates on magic and the magic trick and even brings in Hanif Abdurraqib's A Fortune from My Disaster, which also does this and, and becomes a, a small part of your book. And your book is is chock full of astrology, tarot, witchcraft, self-help books. I wondered if you looked at these as different forms from which one searches for meaning through, whether they're a different version of the hermit crab or if it's just fundamentally different because these are practices you believed in or believe in rather than arbitrary things. Um, I mean, do you see these as cosmologic hermit crabs? Um, Mm. Or if not, if there's something of a different type, maybe you could talk about your attraction to divination um, and magic making. And I know it's an attraction, speaking of changing personas. I know in your Substack you've talked about how since you finished the book, you haven't really been as engaged with many of these practices. So maybe there's something about the bringing the book to an aesthetic resolution has changed you too. But I'd be interested to hear about how you see these, if they are themselves forms or lenses or something else. I think absolutely they are. Ultimately, tarot and astrology were both tools for me to work on intuition, work on belief in something that was not myself, uh, and and cultivate hope and um i think there are ways for me to focus that belief i was coming into that there is something supernatural about the universe um or there's something beyond what i understand to be natural um and so that's you know the tools were were good for that and so yeah and so i think that they are like hermit crabs in that they're, you know, formal tools for me to use as a way of shaping my 
you know, my chaos and my sea of stuff that I'm bringing into the experience, whether it's an essay or trying to figure out how my day is going um, or, you know, what's going to happen this year. So I haven't been using them as much. I, I think that there's a few reasons. The primary reason is what you said. Like I, I finished the book and I, I think it's not just that I brought that to aesthetic completion, but also that the writing process became a much more effective way of channeling the universe than tarot was or astrology was. Astrology, I mean, I spent a lot of time learning the conventions of that practice and uh, it's it's way, way beyond me. It's so, it's so massive, um, even though I really got into it. And tarot doesn't totally feel like mine either. Neither of them really feel like mine, but my writing process is mine. And that became a very powerful like conduit of, of something supernatural in the ways that the synchronicities came together. Um, and, you know, and the ways the motifs showed up, like symbols kept recurring, it felt very powerful. I guess, you know, once that was done, it just had to be done. And I didn't go back to tarot or astrology. Um, I mean, maybe part of it is like the hopelessness of the last year. Um, I'm also not as afraid as I used to be of the unknown. I'm much more comfortable with it. I'm in a stable relationship, a uh, long-term relationship, and um, I'm not afraid within it. And uh, well, when I when I imagined white magic before I read it, when I imagined what white magic was about, I imagined that it was mainly about appropriation and racism within white new age magical practices. And it is how it does touch on this, particularly at the beginning, like um, with a very fierce and amazing essay where white magic, where you sort of unpack how white magic is considered good and benevolent and black magic at best is considered a lower frequency magic and at worst an evil magic. And of course, what is considered black magic is magic coming more often from the Caribbean or Africa. And even when people think this type of magic is good, it's often appropriated completely out of context and recycled as if it were a commodity. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about how the burning of sage by non-native new age practitioners is driving it to become endangered. And you cite an article on that's gone viral about where our healing crystals really come from. But while you, you do unpack all of this and the ways these things alienate you, at the time at least, you seem to be earnestly using them also at the same time as meaning-making devices. And um, in the margins, almost in passing, you mentioned that your Native friends have also been teaching you practices as well, ones that connect you to place. And it made me wonder if the relatively small place these practices take up in the book is because they're still small, if a growing part of your life, or rather because it's just you exercising discretion around disclosure about what to put into the book around tribal rituals that really shouldn't be for the consumption of others. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just completely off limits. And, you know, it is a, 
a big part of this story of healing and uh, certainly the story of sobriety um, and coming to believe in something, but um, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I, in writing that essay, White Witchery, I was really thinking carefully about how I was going to speak to that. And ultimately it just felt like there was no way to responsibly speak to it um, in this context. And so I just, you know, I just put in the refusal basically. Yeah. Um, because I knew, you know, I knew what the, um, what, what much of the audience would be bringing to it and um, how visible it could potentially be. So, um, so yeah, I just didn't, um, there's so much of that that I just didn't include, but through that process and through drafting and revising White Witchery, I just realized that it was so much less interesting to me to talk about magic and appropriation than to talk about myself. And <laughs> I was like, let's get back to me. Um, but I mean, that's, that's part of it. That's honest. But I think the other thing is that um, this is, this book is not, um, my strategies are not rhetorical. I'm, I'm not here to make white witches. Uh, I'm, I'm not here to, to coach white witches, to, um, to shame them, to teach them, to fix them. It, it's, it's just not my project. I'm just not that interested in it. Um, and so I tried to simultaneously be honest about the ways in which I was engaging with magic and how complex it was. But, you know, I mean, ultimately I do some of the same things that, that some white witches do who are doing things I really very much do not approve of. And that's just kind of the, the complexity and ambivalence I, I live within. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the magic in relation or magic and the supernatural in relationship to the real for you. Um, cause there's this one point during a mental health intake, you, you're asked, do you ever see or hear or feel things that aren't there? And you do have a sense of fingers running through your hair right before falling asleep, the product of your PTSD. It made me think of my, of one of my conversations with Morgan Parker, and I can't remember exactly what she said. So this is, uh, paraphrase through memory, but she pointed to problems of looking at depression for a black woman in America as some sort of individual's brain imbalance rather than a very normal response to the lived experience of, of many, if not most black women in America. Um, and it made me wonder about the fingers in your hair, if that really should be seen as it might've been as a hallucin hallucination when in many ways it could be framed as a reasonable response of hypervigilance after repeated assaults. This isn't part of your book, but it made me just think about things that I'd read, um, like how with schizophrenia, for instance, in America, American schizophrenics hear voices that tend to be negative. And in Africa, African schizophrenics tend to, 
to view the voices they hear as benevolent mm. or how these there are these programs in the U.S. now for early intervention of teenagers who've had one psychotic episode because there are things you can do to prevent someone who's had a psychotic episode from progressing to schizophrenia. Um, and it's based on evidence around some traditional models in other countries where families get deeply involved in the care and in other countries mm -hmm. where people sing together and partake in ritual together as part of like the intervention it all made me, I mean, in a way it makes me think of, again, to the basket is form and these non-word or non-rational or non-intellectual ways of meaning making. But it also made me wonder about this question of what is real um, and, what's, and whether magic in some regards could be real. I think that's the question the book eventually moved into. Um because it was the question I was asking after all of my breakups, like, was that real? Was, I mean, the person I was asking was my therapist and, you know, we would talk about it again and again, like, and she would say, you know, feelings not lasting doesn't mean they weren't real. Like there were real feelings involved. There just weren't what you wanted. Um, and I was, I realized how often I was asking the question about so many different things. Um, and yeah, I think what Morgan was saying is very much in line with what Leanne Batasma Sack Simpson is arguing in As We Have Always Done, which I quoted in White Witchery. It's a normal response to, you know, living under colonialism. Um, it's a healthy response. And that's something that, I mean, when I read that, it really blew my mind. Ultimately, I don't know what the sensation of fingers in my hair was about. Um, I know that it is, I mean, I guess I know a little bit more now. At the time, it was happening constantly. And it stopped and started again, or didn't start again, but it happened again when um, one of the exes in the book reached out to me via email, I started feeling it again. And I think it is, you know, it's not a ghost. It is a trauma response. I am hypervigilant. I have, you know, very strong physical reactions to um, being startled uh, and have, you know, really just constantly on alert uh, senses in many ways. So, it's probably just that my hair is moving on my pillow and it feels like really intense. Um, and it's interesting to think about like the fact that it doesn't, that feels in some ways like it's less real than if it were a ghost, um, which probably has something to do with the fact that um, even after all of this work I've done to try to convince myself and others that narratives of trauma are real and are valid and legitimate, part of me still doesn't believe it about myself. And, and you know, I don't know what could ever happen to um, make me feel that I am 
you know, that, that my experiences, uh, my perception of, of what happened to me is, you know, is the text is the, is the most valid one, but you know, I'm still working on that. Well, to, to stay with this, this, um, question of the real and the uncanny, you, you've taught classes on native representation within films. And in this book, we see movies from The Revenant to Wind River. And we also see the video game Oregon Trail 2. And this is going to date me terribly, but it was, a, it was super fascinating for me to read about Oregon Trail 2 because the original Oregon Trail game, which was text only, at, which came out at the time that personal home computers first came out was a huge deal for me growing up because, and computers were exotic mm-hmm. and that game was exotic. And so we actually played it as part of school in elementary school. Like we would sign up and as part of class, you would leave class and you'd go play Oregon trail, which seemed like the most high tech thing you could possibly imagine, even though it was all words, but the newer version, while it shares some traits with the original, namely that you're a white homesteader and the two outcomes are either death or settlement. <laughs> um, as you say, the newer version is of course not text-based, but more fully immersive. And the uncanny thing about it is this is the game that portrays places where your own family lived. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about playing Oregon trail Two in the avatar of a white homesteader, but traveling to go find places, quote unquote, real places in Oregon Trail 2 where um, your own known family would have spent time. So I first played it probably around, I don't even know if I can make a guess, I guess like eight or 10, um, well, probably 10, yeah. and at that time, I had only lived in New Jersey and, you know, my, the house that I had um, grown up in, and I hadn't, I just had a very narrow experience of the world. And I think the way that I related to place and history was just so different then. I knew at the end of the game, if you go the, the sort of primary route, you get to the Dells and I knew like, oh yeah, the Dells, that's, that's near where grandma and grandpa live. Um, But I didn't know really anything about the specifics of our family history in terms of colonization. Like I knew different things about my family, but I didn't know the depth of that context um, because I was a child (laughs) and, and I played yeah, like Reader Rabbit and um, I don't know. I don't know what the other games were, but we played those games at school too. And I don't remember a whole lot about the experience of playing it as a child, other than I know that it was, you know, I was uh, compelled to play it constantly in the way I still am compelled to play video games. And that was one of my earlier experiences with that, although not my earliest. I think at that point, you know, everything that I did 
in New Jersey centered settlement and settlers. So it didn't seem at all strange to me that that would be the experience. I had, you know, I, I had never seen someone like myself represented uh, in any kind of form of entertainment. Um, I'd never seen like just a regular native woman alive or native girl alive today who's not Pocahontas or whatever. So it didn't, it didn't even occur to me that that, that anything was off, that there was any possibility other than um, living inside settlement and, uh, and being driven by settler desires. So I, you know, and I really loved that game. I just, I just loved the hunting and the paths and, you know, and, and everything, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's one of those things that stayed with me. And I used several of these things that stayed with me from childhood in the book, you know, that game, the video from the dare program I was in as a kid. Um, I'm sure there's some other things that I'm not thinking about right now, but when I'm holding those things and, you know, continue to not know exactly what they mean to me, those things seemed like really rich potential places to take the essay. So I revisited Oregon Trail 2. And after having done so much research on, you know, the history of the Cascade people and um, my family in particular, I understood the game in, in a completely new way. And I mean, for one, knew that, you know, Fort Vancouver, that uh, you can reach it toward the end of the game was where um, Chief Tummuth's daughters were living as children after he was hanged. Um, there's no uh, there's no signs of that in the game. It's just a place you stop in, you get supplies, you trade with people. Yeah. Well, as we come to the close of the book, there's a hundred page section. Um, that's sort of like a braid of a whole bunch of different elements. And we, we go back and forth through, um, different sources. Uh, and one of those sources is, is Twin Peaks. And I, I, and it's kind of a weird, maybe it's a weird, or maybe it's a perfect way to sort of come to the end of our conversation with Twin Peaks. I, I know I shared one of my synchronicities with the show with you that I went to high school with the, the actor who played Laura Palmer but mm-hmm. I also like when I moved to Oregon was randomly at a bed and breakfast having brunch with the log lady what uh, <laughs> yeah who was married who was married to a rabbi in Ashland Oregon and was eating there so when we talked about she was so nice and we talked about David Lynch the whole breakfast um and apparently in the new Twin Peaks she was dying and they they filmed her scenes from her from her deathbed they mm-hmm. went to Ashland and filmed those scenes those those strange sort of disembodied scenes are yeah. because of the constraints of what she could do but um but Twin Peaks is a really big presence in this book and it was funny because when I interviewed Brandon Hobson a couple weeks ago after the interview ended we were still talking 
and we just ended up talking about David, how important David Lynch was to him and also Twin Peaks. And it just made me wonder, because obviously the native portrayals and the, the iconography in, in Twin Peaks is caricature, but everything's character caricature or everything's distorted and heightened like suburban white life and blue velvet is that way. And the characters all are these types. I just didn't knowing how much you've thought about thought about um, representation. I just wondered if you could talk about your attraction to twin peaks in this light, whether, whether you liked it despite the fact of, of the ways in which you know, the, the other reasons, the dream logic, this playing with layering of time loops, because he's certainly in the same club with you around time loops, um, or whether he somehow found a way to sidestep problematic portrayals, at least in your case, um, that something about the way it's sort of off kilter in its exaggeration and almost like sometimes a flatness around the way the characters are. I wondered about not just native characters or particularly native characters, but what are your thoughts on Twin Peaks? What are my thoughts about <laughs> Twin Peaks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot of problematic representations in Twin Peaks. Um, you know, Asian representations are terrible absolutely terrible. Um, the native representations I think are, I think, so it's interesting to, it's more interesting to me to actually look at what's not there than what is there. Um, you know, talking about Hawk's character is to me just, there's not much to do beyond rehashing the same conversations we've been having over and over about, you know, stereotyping and caricatures. What's really interesting to me is land, you know, the, the fact that um, the lodge is um, Snoqualmie land. Um, the very first scene takes place at Suquamish at uh, Kiana Lodge. Um, and Suquamish is a place that's really important to me. Um, you know, there, I have written about Suquamish basket weaving in the introduction to shapes of native nonfiction. And I did so much work to try to map where things are happening in the world of Twin Peaks, um, not just where things are filmed, but where they're supposed to be happening. Because at least at one point we get a map and um, I can't remember whose territory it is, but it's in the Northeast part of Washington state. That's where Twin Peaks is supposed to be located. Of course, that's not where the bulk of it is filmed, but there's also um, references to Wind River, I think primarily in the film and I mean that's our that's my territory that's where there's a photo of my um one of my ancestors with her canoe at Wind River mm. um so I find it really interesting that it there are all these places that are not just their native land in the sense that um this is all native land but you know Suquam the the Kayana Lodge is that's 
still Suquamish land. That's still their land. And, um, and yet there's no engagement with any Coast Salish peoples or Coast Salish cosmology uh, in any way. I think Hawk is Nez Perce. And um, if I remember correctly, and there are ideas that are given to him that are really not as far as I know, from Nez Perce cosmology at all, they're like from esoteric traditions that have nothing to do with indigeneity mm-hmm. here. Um, so in a way, it's a good example of of some of the problematic white white magic. Yeah, and the only representation of visibly visible Coast Salishness is, of course, the art on the walls of the lodge. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is something that is, uh, you know, speaks very much to my experience of being native in some places. Like, I mean, I think of Santa Fe and experiences I've had there of, um, you know, white people who seem to love uh, the concept of native art as, um, as they were forming it in their own minds, but didn't seem to love native people um that like just the appearance of coast salish uh thought and aesthetics only on the walls of that building does feel very telling to me that's well said could we go out with another reading yeah absolutely okay um i was thinking the first couple pages of act three yeah If your body is feeling the arc, you know what's ahead. Our narrator faces the monster in a final showdown. Act three is for crisis, climax, resolution, and denouement, meaning unknotting. Eight years ago, I began this book as a drawn line marked by plot points. I outlined a novel about a girl who turns into a shark. When I realized the girl was me, I drew a new line, but I didn't know where to put the only plot point I had. The narrator sees herself from the future. I wrote messes and disappeared them into hard drive folders. I downloaded articles about ghosts and intergenerational trauma. But I couldn't write a book because a book is a denouement of a problem worked through in life. I had to descend into the gloom, the underworld. Writing a book is living out the final battle, a long face-off with what my mind has resisted resolving because it feels safe in the pain. I suppose I should tell you where I am now. And by where, I really mean when, or maybe where is right, the location of this narrative present. Where? I am in Ohio in my attic. The date is October 6, 2019. I've written and arranged the book and now I am passing through sentence by sentence to tighten and unify. I know what happens next because for me, that's over. For you, it's not. While revising, I made a Google map of all the important places in these pages and saw points nearly on top of each other ringing the Salish Sea, fictional worlds, 
filmed worlds, the spirit world from which Ayahus emerged, the world called Seattle, I lived in from 2007 to 2017. I needed a better form than a story, an experiment, or a map. I needed to build a memory palace, a set of mental rooms filled with images, a route to travel through it. But the memory palace was outside me, in the land and the calendar, the seasons dragging through both. The problem with a narrative is that it must end. I knew in the last year of writing that I was cursed with a blockage and would not find love until I finished this narrative. I felt myself traveling toward the final time loops exit or close to solving a riddle. I thought I had solved it by believing there was nothing greater than my assemblage of patterns. That wasn't right, but it worked because even though the solution was wrong, the block was lifted, the gate opened, and I was dismissed as though walking out of a cave. The day I left the time loops, I was in an old fort on the Salish Sea, in barracks repurposed as state park visitor housing, sitting in a first floor bedroom while a doe sat outside my window and watched me work. When I finished the draft, I felt it, resolution. I could stop hexing myself with cursed names. The book ended, but I continued, and the next day my world turned over. The symbols and synchronicities had appeared when I was looking to be convinced by magic, but they made their sense and disappeared, leaving space for a real person. Thank you so much for being on Between the Covers today, Alyssa. Thank you so much for this conversation. We've been talking today to Alyssa Washuda, the author of White Magic from Tin House. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Alyssa's work at washuda.net. Alyssa Washuda adds a reading from an essay in progress entitled Apocalypse Pathology to the bonus audio archive. This joins bonus work from Forrest Gander, Ross Gay, Jory Graham, N.K. Jemison, Nedia Korafor, C.A. Conrad, Therese Marie Myatt, Carmen Maria Machado, Richard Powers, and many others. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, or about the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show. Everything from becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to rare collectibles available from writers such as Ricky Ducournay or Nikki Finney or Ursula K. Le Guin, among many other things. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers or if you prefer a one-time donation you can do so via paypal at tinhouse.com slash support i'd like to thank the tin house team elizabeth DeMeo and elisa ogi in the book division jacob valla in the art department yashwena Cantor in publicity 
and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.